Hi again, I'm Jack Lessonberry, and welcome or welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. This is sort of an evolution of the column I wrote and the radio commentaries I did for many years, so I hope you enjoy and keep listening. You can also catch up with both my writing and any essays and podcasts you may have missed on my website and blog, lessonberryinc.com. This ink is an ink pen. So please settle and listen and stay tuned afterwards for my signature essay. A very important guest today, I want to welcome Dana Nessel, who was elected Michigan's 54th Attorney General in November 2018. She's the first Democrat to hold that office in nearly 20 years, the first openly gay person ever to hold it, the first Jewish Attorney General, and we're lucky to have her here today. Since she's taking office, she's been a whirling dervish of activity and hasn't been afraid of controversy or standing up to interest groups in either party. Attorney General Nessel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. For the early years of the Republic, Attorney generals of the state were mainly reacted. They reacted. They reacted when people uh, uh, when people sued the state. What's your vision for your job? What's attorney general supposed to be? Well, you know, I, I've said this uh, many times, and I, I certainly said it during the course of my campaign uh, running for this office. Is that you know, while certainly there are constitutional and statutory duties and obligations of the Michigan attorney general, where you know it is my job to defend the state when they are sued and to defend state agencies and state actors. Um, I, I see the job as something very different, and I really wanted to take the office back more towards um, the, the way that Frank Kelly ran the office the many years he was there and use it more proactively uh, and to use my, my parents' patriotic capacity, is what it's known, to protect and defend the people of the state, not just the state government, but also the people who live here in our state. And so for that reason, you know, I, I've decided to make the office a lot more proactive than it's been in recent years. And whether that means filing aggressively um, proactive lawsuits on things like the opioid epidemic, the PFAS crisis, uh, or just consumer protection issues in general, we are filing a lot of suits where we are the plaintiff and not the defendant defending a lawsuit that's been filed against the state. How many assistant attorneys general do you have these days? Um, it varies, but you know, generally we're around uh, three hundred and uh, I'm sorry, two hundred and seventy-five to three hundred, and total staff a little over five hundred. So while you see yourself, well, of course, you you have a duty to protect the state and, and to defend its uh, office holders. You also see yourself as the attorney for the ten million people of Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, you know, end up doing from time to time is even though I, I represent a number of, you know, state agencies and commissions and boards, there are times where, you know, I personally don't see eye to eye um, with whatever the perspective is of that agency. And what I do once in a while is we build a conflict wall. And actually, I end up on the other side of that conflict wall and take a different position from those state agencies or those state actors. Um, and, you know, that um, that's something that I think is best utilized so that it really protects the people so that they are having their viewpoint heard at the same time that the state has theirs. So you're required, even if a, a let's say, an official of state government or a legislator committed a crime, was accused of a crime, you are obligated to defend them? Um, well, you know, first of all, when you say uh, a legislator committed a crime... Or is charged uh, with a crime. Is charged with a crime, right. So... We defend civil actions, and, and we are required to defend civil actions. Uh, when a, an individual has committed a crime, uh, then actually uh, under state law there is not an obligation to defend them. Uh, and in fact, what happened during the course of the 
you know, Flint water crisis and right. in the cases that were brought under Bill Schuette, uh, even though uh, their criminal defenses were paid for, that is not an obligation of the state and something that I know Frank Kelly brought up frequently is that he had never seen that done before. I actually had never seen that done before either in any municipal setting and having uh, prosecuted many people when I was a Wayne County assistant prosecutor. Uh, if you had a police officer or if you had uh, someone who was a, a trustee or a treasurer or something of a municipality or city, a township, typically speaking, that municipality, that government entity does not pay for their criminal defense. They pay for a civil defense if they're sued, but not if they have actually committed a crime. Uh, so not in those circumstances. We'll, we'll see in the event that um, my Solicitor General, Fadwa Hamoud, who's handling our criminal cases along with um, uh, Kim Worthy uh, in the Flint water crisis, uh, if, if and I would say more likely when they, they charge anybody, it will really be up to the governor to decide as to whether or not they are provided um, at state expense with criminal defense counsel or whether they'll be left to do that on their own. So uh, stay tuned. Um, and so I want to talk about a few of the other high-profile cases people have been hearing a lot about. There's a perception, at least in the media, that you've been sort of rebuffed on Line 5. When you ran for office, you said you would take steps on day one to shut down Line 5. Of course, that's the pipeline, oil-carrying pipelines under the Straits of Mackinac run by Enbridge, a multinational Canadian firm. Where does that all stand? Well, firstly, there are two uh, lawsuits that are, are pending right now, and I would take issue with the representation that, that, that you suggested. Um, the first lawsuit involves uh, a case that the state is defending that Enbridge is suing, and it involves um, the opinion that I issued from my office that um, PA 359, which was passed during the course of um, the lame duck session in 2018, right. That was, the, that was the, Snyder's thing to set up the tunnel authority? The Mackinac Corridor Authority, right. exactly. Um, and, you know, it was, it was very rushed. It was hurried. Uh, they made many, many changes to it at the last minute. Um, and I was asked by Governor Whitmer, literally on my first day that I was sworn into office, uh, to issue an opinion as to the constitutionality of that. And we found that there was uh, title object-related issues with it and that it was unconstitutional that um, has now been heard by the Court of Claims and there was a, a finding that it was constitutional, the Court of Appeals has not actually ruled on that yet. Um, so we still have two more courts to go. There's a second lawsuit that I filed uh, in my capacity as Attorney General against Enbridge in Ingham County Circuit Court to decommission Line 5. That's a separate lawsuit. And we haven't even gotten to the first stage of the proceedings yet. It's still pending for Judge Jamo in Ingham County, and I'm very hopeful that we'll be victorious in that. Either way, I would say that both of those cases end up uh, before the Michigan Supreme Court eventually. So you are still pursuing, you still maintain that this is uh, something that should be shut down for the safety of Michigan residents, and you're still pursuing that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I see it as really one of the biggest threats we have uh, to our way of life in Michigan. And I think that, you know, in the event there is a, a spill, it's predicted that it will be likely the biggest oil spill in American history and that it'll eclipse actually the BP spill. Uh, and that Michigan is projected economically to be devastated by it, lose billions and billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, there is only approximately 5% or so of the oil that even goes through Line 5 that 
services us, not just in the state of Michigan, but in the United States at all. And you know, it's funny, I was reading something the other day where I guess the, um, uh, the head of the province of uh, Alberta had made some sort of disparaging remarks about me uh, for bringing this suit. And um, my response to him is, um, firstly, I care a lot more about the 10 million people that live in the state of Michigan than I do those who live in Alberta. I'm, I wasn't charged with representing right. them. And secondly, if you want the oil that, that runs through uh, Line 5 so badly, why don't you construct your own pipeline that doesn't run through the Straits of Mackinac and jeopardize uh, the Great Lakes in order to do so? You, can, you have every ability to do that in the event that you want to do that. You don't need to use this shortcut. Um, and put all of us in peril here so that Canadians can get their oil. Exactly. And, of course, this, country, this company has a bad track record in Michigan. They had that horrendous oil spill near the Kalamazoo River 10 years ago. A terrible track record. And, in fact, I, I feel like there's not a month that goes by that they're not caught in some egregious lie. And this happens repeatedly over and over again. Um, and, in my view, they have proven that they absolutely cannot be trusted. So when we look at, you know, firstly, a, uh, an operation of the kind that they're talking about in terms of drilling this tunnel under, uh, under you know, the straits, I, I, I would suggest that they can't be trusted to do that properly, not just that it's not necessary, but that they can't be trusted to do it properly. But certainly in terms of maintaining this now, what is a 77-year-old pipeline that was never meant to be in existence, I think even half that right. length of time, um, and that they lie repeatedly about the condition of that line, absolutely we cannot trust this Canadian oil company to protect um, us from uh, our, our natural resources in Michigan, but also our economic sustainability in the state. Exactly. Um, you know, the case that I think a lot of people were puzzled by your, your uh, ruling in, this had to do with, under Governor Snyder, they set up this computerized system to determine whether people were defrauding the unemployment insurance agency or not. I have a hunch that was done by the same people that set up the computer for the Iowa caucuses. But uh, <laughs> at any anyway, rate, as we know, as many people know, thousands of people were charged with defrauding the unemployment agency who had done nothing wrong at all in their lives were sort of made awful for a time. And a, um, and a, court, a court said they had the right to sue uh, the state to recover recover damages, and you disagree with that. Could you sort of explain that? Well, firstly, when you say I, I disagree with it, we need to have um, some finality in terms of this particular case as it applies to all cases where the state is sued in the Supreme Court. And that is one of the big reasons that we're appealing it so that we know how to better apply the law to these types of cases, because these are some novel cases. It's important that we know how to apply it. But in addition to that, I, I just want to review the way that all cases are settled in Michigan that are of, you know, substantial value, uh, as, as this case may likely be uh, when it's disposed of. And, in, and in, you know, as you know, Jack... You mean in terms of the amount of money the state may have right. to pay out. That's right. And so if you look at um, the cases that were inherited by my administration and by uh, Governor Whitmer's administration, these are some of the biggest cases that have ever been filed in the history of the state of Michigan. So we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the Flint civil cases, the 79 civil cases that were filed um, in relationship to the Flint water crisis, the, the Doe cases, the juvenile um, rape cases right. that were filed against the Michigan Department of Corrections, um, this case, um, Bowserman, the uh, unemployment 
insurance agency cases, and I would say also Gary B, which is the right to literacy case, right. um, which if, if there's a finding in favor of the plaintiffs will be a very expensive case for the state of Michigan. So for the biggest cases, uh, and there's, there's many more as well. So in order to settle those cases, uh, in the event that's something that, that I think is appropriate, this is not a decision that's up to just me. Not only do the client agencies have to also agree, and the governor has to agree, but then remember it's the legislature that would appropriate any of the funds for a settlement. And so in that event, you also have to get the, uh, the majority leader and uh, the Speaker of the House and their caucuses to agree as well. Uh, and then they have to appropriate the money for a major settlement. So when people say to me, why don't you just settle the case? It's not just me alone that has the authority to do that. I can settle it, but then where's the money going to come from, right? So you're saying the, under the Michigan Constitution, it has to be done this way? Yeah, for the, the appropriation of the money has to come from the legislature, absolutely, for any major cases. Um, but the other thing I would say, and I would say this in terms of the unemployment insurance agency cases, there's a, a number of considerations that you have to look at, not just what is the liability of this, is the state liable? Once you get to that point, you say, okay, the state is liable, the state uh, harmed uh, these individuals, and now there's liability. The second phase of that is, what is the correct amount to pay these individuals? Right. And the fact is, I can't just have a plaintiff's attorney come to me and say, hey, we'd like $100 million, and I haven't done my due diligence in order to determine if that is an appropriate amount or not. I do have an obligation to protect the taxpayers of this state. Remember, you know, the state of Michigan doesn't have some insurance company that ends up paying that money. Right. That money comes from somewhere. So it comes from our roads or our schools or our, you know, police and fire departments or what have you. Um, it's got to come from somewhere. So I have to make sure that whatever the settlement amount is, that that is the appropriate amount. And so sometimes that takes a, a great deal of work in terms of interrogatories, in terms of depositions to find out who are these people that were injured and what exactly is their injury. And of course, some may be more injured than others. That's right. But I can't just have a plaintiff's right. attorney come to me and say, we want $100 million. And then I say, well, the state's liable. Sounds good to me. I'm going to go and fight to get you $100 million. I have to do my due diligence. So sometimes it's not a matter when they say, why don't you just settle this? It's not that easy. It's a much more complex issue than that. Do you think this is a case like, for example, in the private sector, the Dalcon Shield case, where it might make sense to sort of set up a fund, set up an administrator, set up, you know, in a sort of a class action basis? Do you, do you, can you envision that happening, happening that way? Well, I think for a lot of these cases, uh, when you have class action suits, that is a good idea for, for um, the funds to be administrated that way. Uh, so it depends on the case. And, you know, obviously some of the cases that I discussed, you know, we, we have confidentiality uh, agreements with the courts, and I can't get into too much detail. But I will just say that this process is a lot different than I think a lot of people deem it to be in the outside. And, again, you know, when you have a private entity that's sued, it's, it's not just them, it's their insurance carrier who has to have this conversation as to whether they're going to allocate that money or not. Well, the insurance carrier in this case... Uh, is is the legislature and the governor. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's a significant process because you have to look at your overall budget for some of these major cases. And again, if I could just point out, you know, these cases were litigated for many, many years. Uh, they were inherited by myself and by Governor Whitmer. Now, we knew that. It wasn't a surprise right. to us. Right. And, you know, I came into this office saying I want to do a better job in handling these cases 
and I do think that you're going to see through the course of this year uh, some very, very major cases that have been litigated for years and years and years that will come to a resolution this year. But sometimes the only way to get to the point where you get to a resolution is to exhaust all of your options. And for the legislature, for instance, to say to me, what have you done to minimize and to mitigate the state's damages? And I really have to be able to say to them, sure. well, here's what I did. I filed the following motions uh, in, in terms of dispositive motions to try to minimize and mitigate the state's damages. And once you've exhausted all that, then I can say, well, now here's what we're left with. And then I can go to the legislature and say, and this is why we're recommending X amount. But, you know, the legislature is not going to just cut a blank check and not know what that money's for. And I think the, the governor would be irresponsible to do that as well. So however you're saying, however sympathetic you might personally feel, you have to do it according to the law. I have to do it according to the law. And then I have various obligations in defending the state as well. And again, I want to make sure that people who are harmed by our state, um, that there's appropriate remedies for them and uh, that they're indemnified properly. But it's still up to me to come to um, a more precise way of finding out exactly what those damages are. And, and that involves the discovery process. You, ha you have to provide something, right? If somebody says, you know, you, you know, you harm me, you wrong me, you rip me off you got to do something. you got to provide receipts or you got to provide information right. about exactly how you were harmed um, in order to expect to get that indemnification. And, and that is something that we, we need to explore further. Speaking of people who have been harmed, where is the Attorney General's Office with the Michigan State University investigation involving the victims of Larry Nasser, uh, you know, the, the, the doctor who you know, molested so many young women? Where, where is everything with that? Well, you know, we are proceeding with the criminal cases that were charged. Um, uh, obviously, we obtained a conviction uh, against uh, Dean Strample, and he was sentenced to a year in jail. My understanding is he was just uh, released from that sentence, um, which for a misconduct in office case for a person who had no previous criminal history was a pretty good sentence. I think his conduct was pretty egregious, though. Um, but uh, we also have, um, you know, uh, Luana K. Simon, who um, the you president know, of the membership, president, president of MSU, and so we have proceedings that are moving forward uh, against her, and her case was bound over to trial. Uh, and Kathy Kalegas, um, her trial's next week, and she was um, uh, a trainer at uh, at one of the gyms, and and you know our contention is that she knew about what NASA was doing and failed to pass that information along, even though she was specifically told about it. Those are the some of the allegations in that case. Uh, so those are three cases that um, either have been disposed of or, or still in the system. Um, unfortunately, as it pertains to MSU, um, there's not much more that we can do in terms of the investigation at this juncture because there are over 6,000 emails that MSU has refused to provide to our office, despite the fact that they're the ones that asked the Michigan Attorney General to come in and investigate in the first place. They've withheld those documents. Uh, citing attorney-client privilege, and that privilege has been upheld by the court, Judge Ball, who um, examined those documents. And, you know, attorney-client privilege is important. I'm not saying that it isn't. But then why ask uh, the AG's office to come in and say that we are going to be fully cooperative, but then withhold over 6,000 I mean, potentially critical documents to You're the You're invited to come in. That's correct. They asked for the AG to come in. 
Uh, and I think it's important to note that you just didn't insinuate yourself. You were asked to come in as part of this investigation. That's exactly right, under the previous administration. And I will say, you know, having now worked with the individuals that were part of that investigation, I mean, they worked tirelessly on this. They did an amazing job. But there's only so much that you can work with if they're withholding documents and if the court allows them to do so. You've been trying to interview former Governor John Engler, who became the MSU interim president and then was fired by the board after a time. Where does that stand? Well, you know, uh, Governor Engler has uh, refused to be cooperative. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of witnesses were interviewed, and oddly, his contract when he became president indicated that part of the contract was that he was to cooperate in any and all investigations right. into the Nasser scandal. Now, he breached that part of the contract. There's not much that can be done because, um, you know, he's no longer there. So there's not really an enforcement mechanism. I know that the Board of Trustees has asked him if he would cooperate. Um, he refuses to do so. And, you know, I get a little bit of blowback about, well, why don't you just subpoena him? Well, in order to subpoena him, you know, we do need to have uh, probable cause that a crime was committed that, you know, he was involved in. And we have to get a court order. And we don't have that evidence. Um, we have a lot of suspicious activity that, that occurred. Um, you know, we were very suspect of, frankly, the way that George Perlis, um, who is now deceased, of course, but was a longtime trustee, how he ultimately left the board of trustees the last minute before um, Engler and left And then a debt was forgiven, wasn't it? And, yep. Uh, there, was a, there was a debt uh, in terms of um, money that he had promised to the university that, um, that was forgiven. And there was some suspicious information like that that happened right. under, uh, you know, Engler's presidency, his interim presidency there that we would have liked to ask him, ask him about. And, um, you know, he was there for the settlements uh, of the Nasser cases. And there was some oddly suspicious activity that took place uh, during that time period. But at the end of the day, we don't have a legal mechanism to get him in. We would have hoped um, that he would have fulfilled his commitment that he made contractually with the university. But, you know, it doesn't stop him from going to every basketball game uh, or a football game that um, the Spartans have. I, I, I would have hoped, and I actually will tell you that I asked at one point um, the the board of trustees to basically prohibit him from going to those games, which they can, and say if you can't cooperate with this important investigation, then maybe you shouldn't be on campus at all. And they refuse to do so. So, hmm. um, do you have enough time and enough people to do all the things you would like to do? Well, it depends on what the legislature does with my budget. Oh, I um, you cannot even imagine how much time, energy, and effort we put into uh, concerns that our budget would be significantly reduced by the Republican legislature, as they had threatened to do. Ultimately, fortunately, that didn't happen. But even just preparing for a state shutdown, which we were on the cusp of, right. um, the budget was actually signed the day before right. uh, October 1st when the, budget, when the state would have had to, you know, completely shut down. Uh, you know, so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how much money we're going to have in terms of, you know, we're, we are, our funds go almost entirely, we don't have programming, we have staff, we have right. attorneys, we have investigators, we have paralegals and so forth. Um, but, you know, what we've done is with the exact same budget that um, Bill Schuette had, we managed to do, I think, a lot more than he ever did. We created a number of new divisions that never existed before. We have the auto insurance fraud division, the conviction integrity division, hate crimes division. We have a special robo calling uh, division of our consumer protection 
um, office. We have an elder abuse task force that we created that we're doing lots of great work and we have really bolstered our elder abuse division. Um, we have added uh, criminal prosecutors to our environmental division. We've done all kinds of things with the exact same amount of money uh, that, you know, Shooty had. It's just that we eliminated a number of these um, constituency uh, outreach positions, which I think were basically just political hacks that were in the office that were there to fulfill uh, Shooty's interest in becoming the next governor of the state. Uh, I have no such interest. So I've decided to use those positions instead uh, on lawyers uh, for what I think are incredibly essential functions of the office. But the problem always is you never know what your budget is going to be for the following year. So we are trying our hardest. Uh, I have tried to keep as many of my campaign promises as possible. We opened an office in Flint. We have one that's being opened in Marquette, uh, which I thought was very important, was uh, shut down during the, the Cox years, had, opened, right. had had been around for a very long time before that. You, you know, you mentioned your three pre the three pre attorneys general between Frank Kelly and you all ran for governor. In fact, I would say they all spent a lot of the time in office running for governor. You're not doing that. I have to say that, you know, obviously the governor is my most important client. And um, boy, that seems like a miserable job to me, I have to say. <laughs> I know it's incredibly important and I respect anybody uh, who gets in there and does that job uh, and does it well. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And I would say especially for somebody in uh, Governor Whitmer's position that has to deal with a very hostile legislature that seemingly is very invested in having her not succeed. Right. Um, it's very, very difficult. And I look at Governor Whitmer and the legislature, and it's very reminiscent to me of the last six years of the Obama administration, where the Republican Congress was was determined to do anything and everything to make well, sure that his presidency was not, sure. not successful. One last final issue I want to ask you about that, I don't know, <clears throat> um, there are a number of people in Detroit who are concerned about the port, uh, port of Detroit, very important they contend there's a master concession agreement signed by Kwame Kilpatrick, the now jailed the former Detroit mayor, and Maddie Maroon. They asked uh, Bill Schutte, your president, your predecessor, to look into that. He never did. Are you, are you familiar with this case and this issue? Well, I've heard a little bit about it, but it hasn't really come up during the course of um, my term in office. Um, and, you know, obviously we represent the state in sure. regard to the Gordie Howe Bridge. Right. And that seems to be, you know, moving forward. The Maroons, I know, uh, continue to fight. And, um, you know, this is how many years in the making at this point already and how many um, millions, millions of dollars they've invested to try to prevent that from it happening. It does look but to be on track. Anything else you want people to know about your job and your priorities in the year, years ahead? You're, you're in office for at least two and a half more years. Yeah, well, I mean, all I can say is uh, I, I, it's very, very important to me that I fulfill my campaign promises to the best of my ability. Um, you know, there's sometimes that you get into office and things look a little bit different from the inside than they did from the outside. Um, but for the most part, you know, I, I have tried to do everything that I possibly can to make sure that the people of the state were properly protected and that they could have a state government that they were proud of um, and an AG's office that they were proud of. Uh, I'm just going to keep doing my job, and I have been really committed to the fact that my work is not going to be based uh, on polling data, uh, and that I would continue to do the things that I ran on, and um, you know, uphold the principles that I think are are just and right and correct, 
uh, and do everything I could to best serve uh, the residents, uh, the great residents of the state of Michigan. And I'm going to continue to try to do that. And if this works out and I end up getting a se second term, then fantastic. And if it doesn't, then I'll know that I, you know, did everything I could uh, to do the things that I thought were best for this state. Well, it's been fascinating. I want to thank you so much for making time for us today. My guess is that few citizens really know what Michigan's Attorney General does or what the office is all about. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you probably now know a whole lot more about it. If you'd like to keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog, LessonburyInc.com, or via snail mail to Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street in Plymouth, 48170, or message me on Facebook for more details. And listen to more episodes, tell your friends, and feel free to send me a message. This is Jack Lessonbury with the Politics and Prejudices Podcast and Attorney General Dana Nessel. We'll see you again soon. I don't have a law degree, but I do know something about the legal system and what the job of a Michigan Attorney General is all about. That's largely because I co-wrote the autobiography of Frank Kelly, who served 37 years in that job and is the longest-serving Attorney General of any state in the country. The title of that book is The People's Lawyer, and that's how Kelly saw the job and saw himself. Before he was appointed to the job in 1961, previous Attorney Generals had seen themselves more as sort of lead attorneys for the state and its elected leaders and thought their main task was to defend them if and when they got sued. They saw the job as reactive, and they mostly saw it as a stepping stone to higher office. Nobody was ever Michigan Attorney General for longer than five years. Frank Kelly saw it differently. He made a career of being Michigan Attorney General. He reorganized the department and managed to get funding for many more assistant attorneys general. He started the first consumer protection and environmental protection divisions in any attorney general's office in the country. He fought for civil rights against consumer fraud, utilities that wanted to charge exorbitant rates, and waged many other battles. After he voluntarily left office in 1999, the next three attorneys general seemed largely focused on running for governor. The first one made it, the next two didn't, but I was never sure that they thought, saw their job or representing all the people they served as their main purpose in life. Dana Nessel is, however, different. She's openly modeled her vision of the job on Frank Kelly's. We live in a different world today from Frank, of course. There was no internet for most of Frank Kelly's career, and hence no cybercrime. The opioid drug epidemic had yet to explode. Fentanyl and crystal meth were something no one had ever heard of. And when it came to civil rights, nobody was thinking about extending legal protections to gays and lesbians, let alone transgender folks. Today, most of the old issues are still there, plus all the new ones I mentioned and more. And defending the state and its office holders is still part of the job. Dana Nessel knows all this. Oddly enough, what, must have, what may have most impressed me about her was a case last month where she took a position that, at first, dismayed me. During the Snyder administration, a computer glitch caused thousands of Michigan workers to be falsely accused of committing fraud against the State Unemployment Insurance Agency. People's wages, thousands of them, were wrongly garnished, and lives badly damaged. Last December, the Michigan Court of Appeals panel ruled they could seek damages from the state, something that only seemed fair and right to me, and I guess fair and right to most Democrats. But Attorney General Nessel disagreed and filed a suit asking the Michigan Supreme Court to overturn that ruling. Why? Because she knows the federal courts have indicated it's up to state legislatures to compensate victims in such cases, and federal law always supersedes state law. The stand she took wasn't popular, but she believed it was right. That's exactly the kind of chief law enforcement officer we need. 
By the way, I visited Frank Kelly last week at his retirement home in Florida. He told me he thinks General Nestle is doing a fine job. This is Jack Lesenberry. Thanks for watching and listening, and I'll see you again soon.